Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to welcome students with limited or interrupted formal education into your classroom. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Orly Klappholz, co-founder of Inlier Learning from Hollywood, Florida. According to the UN, by the end of 2021, as many as half a million people will likely flee Afghanistan. After time spent in refugee camps, many families will resettle in North America and Europe. And I think it's worth asking ourselves an important question. Would our schools, and would we, as teachers and administrators, be ready to provide Afghan students or any other population with limited or interrupted schooling with the best education possible? Fortunately for people like me, who answer that question with a, uh, probably not, there are teachers like Orly Klappholz who focus on providing support for SLIFE, the acronym to refer to students with limited or interrupted formal education. Orly, a self-described data nerd, is the co-founder of Inlier Education, which provides assistance for schools wanting to support SLIFE and other multilingual learners. Since my conversation with Orly in April of 2021, she and her co-founder have changed their name from Multilinguals Forward, which we reference in the episode, to Inlier Learning. By email, she explained that the name change came from the fact that, quote, in statistics, inliers are data sets that are often hidden in plain sight and therefore not always tended to. We felt that historically, SLIFE, while right in front of us and in our classrooms, haven't been identified and therefore not supported. Good luck on your not-so-impossible lesson with Agent Orly Klappholz. Orly, thank you so much for joining me and the listeners today on the podcast. To start off, if you could give us a little peek into who you are and what your role in education is. Sure. Thank you so much for reaching out and for having me. I'm really uh, excited to talk to you today. I am Orly, and I uh, co-founded a company called Multilinguals Forward, and we provide schools and school districts with supports uh, for multilingual students, but particularly students who've had um, interrupted or limited formal education, which usually the term is uh, SIFE or SLIFE. Many people know them as. I've seen the acronym occasionally. And in my mind, I kind of have an idea of the kid that you're talking about, like usually an ELL student who maybe came from Syria where their education was disrupted due to civil conflict or kids that were pulled in and out of a lot of schools and they're starting to age out of the program. And that's when a lot of the panicking happens, at least at the school level when I'm involved. Is, is that your typical student or is it a much broader portfolio? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It is, it's a much broader portfolio. I think it's pretty typical of teachers to kind of have that idea of that child in mind, right? Because when we think of interrupted schooling, right? So a child who has to leave a certain place because of, let's say, war or famine or or certain circumstances, natural disasters. So that is a pretty, I guess, obvious image for us to think about when we think about students with um, interrupted schooling. And those students are obviously part of it, but I would say the term really is much broader than that. So we're talking about kids who've had interrupted schooling um, really for any reason, or maybe have not had access to um, what we would call pretty traditional formal schooling uh, for whatever reason. So we might, that includes, and you may think about kids who let's say, go to school every day even, but maybe their teacher doesn't come for whatever reason, or um, their school hours are um, much shorter than at least what we would consider a typical school day. Um, So they're not, uh, they don't have the same access to, um, I would say, like a full traditional formal educational setting, uh, or students who may live in certain rural areas of their of their home countries that, again, may not have the same access um, as other kids do. Let's say that's typical maybe of cities in that same country. So those kids would also be considered in that umbrella of SIFE or SLIFE. That's interesting because it really made me think about my concern has always been about that language acquisition, but really there it's much deeper than that because if you haven't had access to a lot of math education, you can find yourself way behind when you come to a new country. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, I think it's interesting because there tends to be in general, when talking about uh, this population, very heavy focus on the literacy, which is obviously important, but the numeracy also uh, needs to needs to have a focus and its own spotlight because um, they also need support in those areas as well. And also, we need to make sure that we're being aware of their cultural needs, right, when they come into our classrooms, or even they may not know uh, how to hold a pencil. Maybe they've never held a pencil before, right? So kind of some of the things that uh, we often take for granted or think might be obvious because let's say a student is 14 and coming into the classroom may not be obvious uh, for them for a lot of reasons. Um, and so we need to really take into account that like full spectrum of need when it comes uh, to this population. So maybe you can walk me through kind of a parallel track, if you will, the ideal of what would happen and then maybe what some of the issues are. And I know every school is different, every district and every state and country is different. Yeah. (laughs) But what would ideally you have a student who has limited or interrupted education, they're a non-native English speaker, they've come to, we're going to say the U.S. because that's where we both are, and they are let's say here on like a a refugee visa. So there's a lot of other things happening in their lives. Ideally, what happens so that they're best situated for being part of our education system? Sure. I will try and answer that as best possible, right? There are a lot of things that need to be considered. I think the first thing that's really important that varies state to state, district to district, is even just kind of teacher awareness and teacher training, right? And district awareness. So we have districts, uh, we have states, right, that don't have a definition. They don't really have any supports. Like if you go to their uh, district websites or if you go to the state educational websites, they don't have anything yet. So uh, 
you know, the first kind of real step is like even having anything in place for, uh, to support teachers to support, um, and for districts to support. So that first of all comes with, um, identifying these students, right? So sometimes people will uh, be like, oh, it's, this is a new student. So it, this is a, let's say a newcomer and slice, but they're not necessarily the same, right? So we first, first is a district having to determine, is this child really a kid, right? Who let's say has had, uh, an interruption, for example, in their schooling. Once they've done so, it's really also engaging their family and making sure that the family is aware, right, of uh, what school culture will be like, uh, where to go, what to do, um, and really making sure we provide access to their home languages um, so that they, you know, and being aware of their culture and supporting that throughout the whole process. And I would say that once a school knows that they're going to have a child who is SLIFE enrolled in their school, then like already they should be preparing, right? So even something simple like having signs in their native languages or pictures, right, to guide them through the school. Um, already before school starts or before the child in, uh, enters school, right? So let's say sometimes kids come in the middle of the year, right, who is a child who's life. So once you already know they're coming in, reaching out to family, reaching out to the student, going through the school day with them, explaining how school, you know, what the culture of school is going to be, where to go, what to do, all of those uh pieces. Uh, and then also making sure before a child enters a classroom to think about culturally, right? Is this a child who's coming from a collectivist culture, right? So will they think about a classroom and working together in a very different way than a typical American classroom would look like, right? In terms of when you think about culture, um, and taking those into account also, same thing when you think about even body language, right? Is this child going to come from a culture where they're schooling? It's typical for them to just get up and leave the classroom. They don't, let's say, raise their hand if they have to go to the bathroom, right? So all of those kind of cultural norms and, uh, linguistic norms for them, I would say first is preparing the teachers before that kid gets in the classroom, right? And making sure they are looking at this kid, from a strengths-based uh, perspective, right? So not thinking of like, well, this kid didn't go to school, so they're going to need all these things. It's like, okay, well, let's look at all the things they're coming in with and how we're going to capitalize that on that in the classroom. And then once that kid is entering the classroom and once we've taken all those things into account is thinking about, okay, from an academic perspective, how am I going to support this kid? And that really needs to look, uh, you know, it needs to look like making sure that you are number one, making sure that this kid has access to their native language, to their home language, um, that they have permission to use that, right? It shouldn't ever, they shouldn't feel like they can't use it. And then also making sure you're giving them kind of those numeracy foundations that they need and the literacy foundations that they need at the same time that they're also getting grade and age appropriate content, which is complex, right? Because yeah, <laughs> cause it's not, it's not simple to say like, well, you know, this kid maybe is coming in and they're in need of, you know, real literacy and numeracy foundations and they're coming in a ninth grade or 10th grade or even 11th grade. Right. But it's, it's something that we really need to take into account because we don't want to give them things that you would give, let's say to a kindergartner. Right. But we need to make sure that we are using kind of their entire, um, uh, you know, culture, language, and strengths that they come in with to support them with grade and age appropriate content and also giving them kind of the foundations. Um, and I would say, and doing that while supporting them in, an, in a really welcoming environment. I read something recently about uh, schools that supports life. And um, this one school is talking about how everyone gets involved. Like the, what they found is that 
everyone from, uh, you know, the custodial staff to the secretaries, to the principals, to the teachers, to the district level, like getting everyone on board to understand where these kids are coming from and to understand that they come in with these incredible strengths and we're going to use those in order to support them. And also at the same time, look at the areas that they really need support in that are challenging for them. That's really where we see um, the most success for these kids overall. So I've got a pretty good idea of where the hiccups of the system are going to be along the way. (laughs) What do you think is really the biggest barrier to successful integration and education? Sure. I mean, right now, I think one of the largest barriers is awareness. Right now, uh, what we at Multilinguals Forward is doing, we are collecting all the data from all the districts um, across the United States to find out what even exists and what doesn't exist. And what we have found is there are currently only three, there, there are, well, four actually now, there are four states in the entire country who are even just collecting SLIFE data. So we don't even really have, yeah, we don't even, right. (laughs) We don't even really have a good sense, right. Of like how many students we're talking about different districts have different definitions. So it's kind of like, well, if you're in one place and then this teacher's in another place and we're talking, we're we're not, we might be talking kind of apples and oranges a little bit. Um, so I think, that's kind of step one is even just like all around throughout the whole country, right? It's just like awareness and, and, uh, across the board definitions and legislation so that we can get them that support and then making sure that whatever schools they're in, the teacher, teachers really having the tools to be able to, to support them. Um, but they, those things like really go hand in hand, you know, like if a state isn't focused on making sure that these kids are getting counted, then we can't, it's hard to expect then for the teachers to have that support because it's not right from the top down. You already don't have that awareness yet. So I think that's probably uh, the number one uh, barrier right now to making sure that these kids are supported. I had a a colleague, her and other colleagues at her school were set to receive, it sounds like they're dropping off packages, but that's always the language that they use, like you will be soon receiving some students from Syria. And so they were given workshops about like trauma and PTSD and like the trauma of being a refugee, but never really given any concrete solutions on like other than obviously that's super important to be trauma-informed in your teaching practice, but it was never beyond like, so the kid's going to be really messed up. Goodbye. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem, right? Like it's, and and it's interesting because obviously being trauma informed and having instruction that is trauma informed um, is really important. But I guess what's fascinating is that even many of the classrooms or or, or schools maybe who do it are functioning within a system in which the behavior system is not set up to do that, right? So even if you have teachers who, let's say, like, are very aware of what a child, uh, what, you know, anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder may look like in a child, right? So let's say that could be shutting down. It could be um, a panic attack, right? There's so many different things that it could manifest as. It could be flipping a desk, right? Like, meaning it could, you could show a kid an image not realizing to a child that is deeply traumatic to them and they could really have a breakdown. And it, even if a teacher is aware of those things, if the system in which that 
the, you know, that classroom exists is right. Like, oh, then remove the kid from the classroom and let's say suspend the kid. Right. So it's, it doesn't, the, the whole system has to kind of be flipped on its head a little bit. Right. Um, and I, I say this a lot when I talk to educators that, you know, it's interesting how we know what is good for children. We know, right, from fields of psychology and neuroscience of like what is supportive of kids who have been through extreme amounts of trauma. And, and somehow our education system as a whole is still working under a pretty punitive system. So it's, it's, they don't match. Um, and I think that that to me is the biggest barrier when it comes to supporting these kids from kind of the emotional perspective, or um, I should say from the trauma-informed perspective, even though there are there are teachers who are doing amazing things, right? But it is definitely challenging when you're working in kind of that broader system that isn't um, all around supportive in that way. So do a lot of these kids end up doing like the ELL stream and the special ed stream? Are there pathways for integration. Like I'm just trying to think of in the school systems that I've worked, when you have such complex needs, oftentimes they just get shuttled towards specialists. And then that's the last that you as a classroom teacher probably ever see them unless you yourself are a specialist. Yes. So there are definitely major uh, accomplishments that teachers, I guess, have done um, with these kids and um, that these kids have, uh, you know, accomplished themselves in terms of graduating and, and, uh, you know, just resilience and grit that they have just applied to their studies. I would say two challenges we have is the first is that because states, there's actually uh, only three who are disaggregating their data. So it's, we don't really know how many are moving forward in that way, let's say graduating or taking the traditional track, I would say. Generally, also, these kids cannot get an individualized education plan. So they can't be, in most states, um, the second that you kind of click on uh, the system, within the system of referral for special education, if you click on the their site, the system shuts down. You, they cannot be referred. Yeah, it's it's a really big problem. They they need the, they really need their own system, and we don't have it yet. Um, and because the 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 reason behind that is because special education and IEPs are really set aside based on federal law for a kid who has uh, any one of the you know things listed within IDEA, um, and a kid who is having academic challenges as a result of interrupted education is not included um, within that within that framework. And as a result, those kids can't, you know, are, are, are there kids who I'm sure do across the United States? Yes. But on a whole, they're really not supposed to be referred for special education. And so you have some kids who, despite all of those things, right, um, and with just incredibly supportive staff and schools are really doing incredible things. Uh, but you really have a lot of kids who are not. The most recent research shows that between 70 to 90% of these kids are, are leaving school. Wow. Yeah, it's a large number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, it's really important, right, that we celebrate these the wins. And it's really important that we learn from each other about all of those pieces. And um, at the same time, we need to hold the same truth, uh, you know, together, like two things are true. There's a this wonderful psychologist, uh, Dr. Becky um, Kennedy, who says that all the time, just about life, like, it's okay if like two things are true, right? We can hold both those at the same time. And I love to use that because 
it's such a good way to kind of frame what's going on. Like, yes, there are these incredible wins. Also, at the same time, it's true that we have a really high, right, like leaving school rate. And so we need to address, we need to like look at both those things really at the same time in order to make sure that we're fully supporting the kids across the spectrum. I I know that the data at this point is pretty limited. Is there any indication or correlation between age of being a newcomer and leaving school? So I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know about specifically being a newcomer. I definitely will say that for sure a child, you know, a kid who's coming in already in the secondary schools who has had interrupted schooling. Some of this obviously depends on the state, the district, right? Some districts have like newcomer programs that uh, may be more supportive of this population before they're integrated into um, a typical traditional school. But yes, it is definitely harder once you're older, for sure, right? If we think about a kid coming in in the age of 15, you know, need foundational skills and also the content and need to pass all these exams. And maybe they also need to work, for example, right, to support family in some way. And then also, even if they don't, you know, that it just is so much more challenging than a kid, let's say, who comes in in fourth grade and has had, let's say, interrupted schooling for whatever reason. Um, It just, it's a different they don't have to play catch up in the same way. Uh, and I would say and the systems are more in place for them once when they're younger in order to support, right? Like foundational skills and all of those aspects um, of support that they may need that they just don't have in the same way that children in secondary schools would need. I could even think from the point of view of being a classroom teacher, if in elementary you have a class meeting before the kid arrives, you, you know, the whole class gets involved. I love that idea of making signs using pictures in their native language. Like you assign class jobs of who's doing what to help. Whereas in secondary school, you can do that, but you're one of eight places that that kid is visiting for a limited amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, high school in general, secondary school is just more kind of like an individualistic place, right? Like even if you have some schools, like I taught in a school where the whole class traveled together. So you were really with the same class all day, which was purposeful, but you have plenty of schools where you just go class to class to class and you're with different kids, you know, throughout your day. And yeah, no, unless if you have you may have an advisory, but you may not, that may be the only time. And maybe it's once a week or twice a week, not necessarily every day. So yes, compared to right in elementary school, um, or definitely kind of early childhood, even earlier that where you may have that morning meeting, um, or you have just those systems in place much more so, um, when thinking about supporting kids on a whole. So yes, it's definitely um, more challenging on the secondary level. And so what was your route to becoming involved in this? Like what sparked your passion? Yeah. Um, so I was um, I was teaching in a school in, in New York City. And I <laughs> it's actually a funny story. Actually, I, d- I didn't even know this these kids existed. Like I had never heard in my master's program, I had not heard of these kids. I had not heard of this population. Um, and I was walking into my apartment building. And, um, I don't know, this guy also was walking at the same time and I like to talk to people. So I was like, hi, who are you? <laughs> um, and I found out that he also teaches in another part of New York city. And I was like, cool, what do you do? And I don't know, we just started talking and, um, 
he he told me about his school and I was like, wow, that sounds really amazing. It was a school for all older adolescents, uh, newcomer students. And I was like, that is really awesome. Honestly, I've always wanted to travel. Like I wanted to teach all around the world and just for circumstances kind of beyond my control, it's just never been able to happen. Um, I love working with other cultures. And he was like, so come visit. And I went for the day and I was like, I have to teach here. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I met with the principal and that was kind of it. And I switched to that school and um, it was the first time that I had heard the term SIFE or SLIFE, and I really started to do a deep dive into this population and the research that does exist um, in universities, and I just like could not stop reading about it. And um, I, 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 I think some of it maybe even like personal. My, you know, I, my grandparents are, were refugees from Holocaust, and I think like they left when they were. I mean, they had to flee when they were younger and like they never, uh, you know, my grandmother never finished the sixth grade and I, you know, she would talk about that. And I think it just, I don't know, it just kind of sparked something in me. Um, and I think I felt like, why isn't there more support? It didn't, it didn't really make sense. Um, because we can, we know that when we give them the supports, like how, how well they do. Um, and so it took, it, it took a bunch of years of like thinking through, okay, like, you know, what supports do they need and, and what to do? And I, I started going back to school for my, my original master's was in special education. And then I was like, I need to go back for second language acquisition. So I kind of really did a deep dive into um, kind of really best ways to support these kids. And it just, um, when the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, I guess now's the time to kind of put something bigger together that, that will be helpful. Um, and that's what kind of led me to the multilinguals forward. But uh, yeah, I really just honestly started with a conversation with like a random stranger walking into my apartment. <laughs> <building>. <laughs> um, and here we are. So yeah. <laughs> I found, especially like looking through your website, really fascinating because I'm currently doing a, a master's in second language acquisition and just learning about like my focus is on English learners learning French, but then looking at some amazing research about how different first and second languages influence your acquisition of English, which is where the majority of the research is, and just how I know that ELL teachers are usually specialists in this, but like as a regular classroom teacher who's also trying to teach literacy, I was like, wow, I didn't realize like, especially I had a high population of kids coming uh, whose first language was Cantonese. And I feel like I could have served them so much better understanding what that language transferal process was. Yeah, I, 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 um, <laughs> yeah, that's honestly how I felt when I first started teaching at this school, all of a sudden I was like, wait, I don't, I don't, how can I, I don't know anything. Like it just felt very like, yeah. Like I was like, do I know anything? Do I even know how to teach anymore? And, and I like gobbled up books on, on second language acquisition. It's interesting because, um, kind of like what you were saying, like even, you know, the research you from, cause it really, so much of it is looking into, let's say, into English, right? Um, from what I've read, I was like, but there's there's so much here that, like, even within the theories and even in all of the research, I'm like, but this still doesn't really fit so many of my students. So I don't know, right? It's like, what exactly? I'm like, well, this kid, right? Like, their let's say first language doesn't really have a written form. 
and then they were taught in this language, but then they also speak another language and now English is going to be their fourth language. Um, and you're like, wow, this kid's brain is like amazing. Right. Um, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but you're also like, but also, right. Like I, like what does research say in order to support this kid? And I think it's those pieces that are definitely much harder to find. Um, but I definitely felt that as a classroom teacher, I was like, I wish I had more kind of support, um, or knowledge base. I definitely felt that even when I first started teaching before that school and I really loved my master's program, but I, I felt like I wish it had almost been longer because I, there are so many other aspects of education that I felt like I had to teach myself, um, in order to really be a more well-rounded teacher in the classroom that I wish, um, I had had more guidance in when I was, um, getting my master's. Having had that experience, if you were to go back to first year at this school, Orly, what would you tell her? Oh, I'd probably tell her it's going to be okay. <laughs> um, um, I, I mean, in terms of um, in terms of um, academics, I'd probably tell myself to trust my gut more of what like felt right. You know, I, I think I did, but probably not to the extent that I wish I had. Because I think as, uh, teachers, you know, you get a lot of do this, do this, depending on what state, what district, who your admin is, right? Like all this different stuff. And sometimes it's like spot on. And then other times you're like, I don't really think this is going to work for my students. Um, and you might do it, you know, anyway. And I was in a very supportive environment that like if I didn't think it was going to work for my students, I they would have been like, okay, cool. Like you could try this. I wish like at least in the beginning of the year, I, I felt more like I could just kind of trust that gut and, and go with it. Yeah, I think that's probably the the uh, best advice I'd give myself. And do you find that the kids and the population that you're working with, obviously it's going to be a range of kids who from interest in academics and wishing that their school hadn't been interrupted to maybe being glad that there was interruptions to different interests and skill level and obviously levels of resilience, both emotionally and physically, but what is it that the kids you think need that they're just not getting that maybe we could advocate more for or give to them if we can? I think across the board, I would say the first, the first piece is really kind of like that emotional and like community support. You know, we know how much like the kind of that social emotional piece and the academics are really tied. And I think there's a piece of both that when you kind of find that sweet spot, the kids, like you really see them thrive. And so if you take a kid, let's say, who is really academically motivated, but you put them in a classroom where the teacher is just looks at them from this kind of like deficit, you can't do it approach. So it's going to be hard for that kid to thrive, right? They might, right? But you're, 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 you're not giving them that, that um, emotional support, that community Base support to help them. And then you can kind of take it the same way that if I put that kid in an emotionally right supportive classroom, but I don't give them the academic side that they really need. So that also isn't supportive. And I think it's, it's really, um, both aspects. It's, I wouldn't point to just one. It's, it's the need for teachers to see, see and use their strengths, um, as well as, uh, two things are true. And at the same time, right. Look at the, the, the academic needs. Yeah. I'm telling you, I use it all the time now, but two things are true. <laughs> Say like, okay. Um, as a result of 
whatever it is, interrupted schooling, this may be really challenging. And as a result of that, here are the supports that I'm going to put in, right? And the scaffolds that I'm going to take away over time um, in order to fully uh, support them, you know, with that full range of support in the classroom. Um, and I think that th- you need both of those pieces. For myself, even finding age-appropriate resources for my students that are learning a second language where I don't want to give them baby books, but I also don't want to just completely turn them off reading. And I can imagine that there's all sorts of problems, even when I'm thinking of like remedial math worksheets tend to have lots of like teddy bears and balloons on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is there places that you go where you find that the resources are the most appropriate? Yeah. Um, I will highlight Saddleback has really incredible Saddleback public, uh, publishing education company. They are, um, they're really phenomenal. Their resources are phenomenal. Um, they have a lot of resources. They actually, um, I even saw, uh, recently I was looking at their stuff and they have, um, really, uh, kind of like high, um, high interest, uh, like for age grade appropriate, uh, with phonics, uh, like books, which are so great for these kids. Cause it means that they really can practice those foundational skills and not, um, be looking at just like teddy bears. <laughs> um, so they're definitely, they're like really high on the list. And, and honestly, they're one of the only ones I would say, um, there's really not a lot out there. Um, it's definitely something that we at Multilinguals Forward are, are working on tackling, uh, because we get, you know, emails, often about like, who do you use? Who would you suggest? What do you have? You know, um, people are definitely looking. We, we're, you know, we have more and more kids who, who need it, I think, uh, which is great because great in the sense, it means we're identifying these kids more and realizing what they need and making sure we're getting what they need. It's definitely, um, complex and complicated because there really isn't a lot out there. Um, but I definitely would highlight Saddleback. They have really incredible, um, uh, resources for these kids. And, and you can look at it online. You know, they have uh, examples that you can take a look at. So they're, they're my number one go-to. <laughs> and so if people want to find out more about you and what you and Multilinguals Forward are doing, how can they do that? Yes. So you can either go to our site, which is www.multilingualsforward.org. Um, you can email me um, at orly at multilingualsforward.org. I'm on Twitter at Orly Clapholtz. <laughs> um, so yeah, any of those uh, things you can go to. We actually have a new site that is going to be launched either today or tomorrow. So that's very exciting. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, because our uh, Slife screener is just about getting ready to be launched. So we're very uh, excited about that. So we're, we hope people will uh, take a look, but you can find us um, in any of those places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Orly. I I learned a lot about a part of education that I think I've been really ignorant <laughs> about for a long time. I mean, thank you. Yeah, I thank you for uh, you know having me on. I think uh, I really appreciate it. I I mean, I could talk about this you know all day every day. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, you know I appreciate it, and I um, appreciate your questions. And yeah, I had a great time. So thank you. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. 
If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 